As I read this week, our passage that we're going to cover of John eleven forty five to 57, I could not help but be reminded of the concept and the experience of being a tattletale when I was growing up. I think you know what I mean when I say tattletale, but just for those of you who've never heard of that term before, Merriam-Webster defines tattletale as someone such as a child, which is exactly me, who tells secrets about what someone else has done, one who tattles, or actually, I love this even better yet, they're called the informer. So I don't know if you have any informers in your family, but growing up in Snyder County, which is about an hour north and a little west of here, um, I was the informer in my family. I have an older sister who's five years older than me. I have an older brother who is three years older than me. And that makes me the baby of the family, which probably doesn't surprise you at all if you know me. Um, But when I was a tattletale, I was not just trying to get someone in trouble, namely my brother, Um, although I was. I was typically also trying to avoid getting into trouble myself. So my, my tattletaling actually had more of a Uh, an attempt to have the self-preservation because oftentimes I was probably more guilty than my brother was at something. Um, But I wanted to kind of slip around it. I wanted to maintain kind of a clean record with my parents. Now, I know know this sounds a little silly or it's actually a little bit fun to think about with this tattletaling. But in that, actually, I think we can each see a little bit of ourselves. Maybe not in trying to get somebody else in trouble, but maybe the idea of self-preservation or self-justifying, justification, is something that we can struggle with at times. You know, we can have a strong desire, even a craving to be okay to have that clean record. It can take on really kind of an identity that we strive to keep. Even as Christians, we can strive to be making sure that we are doing okay with God in our own strength, in our own efforts. And this morning in our text, I believe Jesus wants to meet us in this. See, in this text, in the dark turn and ironic turn of events, there is this plot to kill Jesus that is motivated by the self preserving, self-justifying wickedness of the Jewish leaders. The death of Jesus, which will justify men, is decided by the men who are trying to preserve and justify themselves. God is orchestrating tattletales and sinful self-preserving decisions and events to bring about Jesus' death for his people and for their sins. This is why he came, to gladly die, to atone for sins. In his death, Jesus justifies you and me when we receive him by faith. So as we, as we embark on this new year of 2023, it is fitting for us. It is fitting for us to study a text like this that causes us to think more about Jesus' death. Indeed, Jesus came to die for you so that you can have fresh faith in him and live in the good of his death. Well, let's read John 11, 
verses 45 through 57. If you can, please stand if you're able, as this is God's word, and even as I read these words aloud, he is addressing us. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. You may take your seats. As you do, let's pray. Father in heaven, grant us spiritual sight by your spirit to see the spiritual realities presented before us here in this text especially the plotting to kill Jesus that is all according to your sovereign design and will. Help us to see what Jesus' death means for us. Give us a deeper understanding and a deeper faith in your son. And bless the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have three points for us to consider this morning. The first is the two responses Second, the prophetic plot. And the third is the Passover preparations. So the first point is the two responses we see in verses 45 to 48. As we have seen in various other contexts in the Gospel of John, we have seen really that there are only two available responses to Jesus, to his teaching, and especially his miracles and his signs. We see It here in this text as well. Jesus has just performed a public miracle, an amazing miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, the man was dead. You don't get any deader than dead. Like, he was dead. And he raised him from the dead. How would you respond? How does anyone respond to something like that? Well, Two, two different ways. The first is one would see this miracle 
For themselves, they would see who Jesus is, not just the miracle. They would see who he is, what he has done, and they would believe in him. Or, secondarily, they would continue in their unbelief and even harden against Jesus. See, a miracle of this magnitude, with a miracle of this magnitude, you can't be neutral. It's either you believe or you don't. There's no way of navigating a middle way. In fact, as you look at these two different groups, a starker contrast cannot be made here. So let's look at the first group here in verse 45. Those who believe. It says here, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now first, look at this. These believing people were many Jews. Some have drawn incorrect conclusions that that all Jews were opposed to Jesus. John clarifies that for us here, that that is not the case. Jesus is drawing people to himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation, including his own very people group. Second, the word many. We notice that word many. It's not insignificant. So we'll see in the other group, it was only some that didn't believe. Many people believed a significant number of Jews. But lastly, notice, they're not just physically seeing what's taking place here. The word that's used by John is not a typical word that we would see as far as just seeing something. It's a seeing that's had a very significant impact on the person doing the seeing. It's not, they're not just seeing the miracle. They're seeing the person behind the miracle and the claim that Jesus has on their lives. They believe. They surrender to Christ. Now, the contrast. Those who do not believe and continue in unbelief. We see in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They saw the same thing, but they didn't see it in the same way. And first note the word some. It's not all of them. It's just a few, it seems. But look, as I referenced earlier, the tattletales, I would kind of define these guys as the informers. We've got to go run to the Pharisees. They've got to know about this. They weren't thinking about responding to Jesus. They were thinking about, we got to get him in trouble. He needs, we got to deal with him. Why didn't they respond, not just the informers, but the Pharisees and others? Why didn't they respond like the many Jews who believed? Well, we read on in verse 47, 48, and we find out. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That would be our hope. Everyone should believe in him. The Romans will come and take away our, both our place and our nation. Now we see something here, don't we? Richard D. Phillips says, These men were mainly interested in maintaining their own privileged positions. If we let him go on like this, they reasoned, everyone will believe in him. The implication was that the people would no longer look to them for spiritual leadership. This is at the crux of it all. They would lose their leadership position, their privileged 
position. Now, this is a very serious thing that's happening here because these Jews are not just thinking about their leadership. They're thinking about their identity. They're thinking about their very existence because Rome could come and take away it all. In fact, eventually, Rome would come and destroy the temple. But what do they do? Well, seeking to preserve it all, they call together the gathering of Jewish leaders. Where we see the word here for a council in verse 47, we need to recognize that this is, this is the only time in the Gospel of John that, that John actually explicitly calls out what's termed the Sanhedrin. This is the court of the Jewish leaders that makes major decisions. So they call together this major decisive event to get together because in their unbelief, they must do something. Or Jesus will win everyone and they will lose everything. Notice their example of unbelief reminds us that unbelief is not passive. Unbelief is not a passive thing. Oftentimes when we are tempted to unbelief, we actually feel like we have to do something. Whether it's trying to earn God's favor by being good in some ways, unbelief is not passive. Well, let me ask you just a few simple questions about how you relate with those who are in this passage. Which which of those in this passage represent you the most? Are you like the many Jews who saw the sign, the raising of Lazarus, and you just simply believe and want to follow? Or do you identify with the Jewish leaders and actually identify a little bit with their self-preserving or their self-justifying nature? I think if we, both, if we all would be, um, admit it and be truthful, we probably would say a little bit of both. Is there a particular temptation to want to be okay with God that you feel like you have to measure up in a certain way? And I can relate with that. But remember, the whole point that Jesus came into the world was to deal with that. Jesus came to die for you and me. So we can have fresh faith in him and live in the good of his death and rest in that. That's point number one, the two responses. The second point is the prophetic plot. Verse 49 to 53. Now we come to the actual action that the Sanhedrin council does. What shall they do? Well, Caiaphas, as the high priest that year, he's actually high priest from AD 18 to AD 36 for about 18 years, but in his role... He steps up and he provides the clear direction for the council. Now, at first glance, when he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand, he seems a bit like a know-it-all. And we probably all know someone like that around us. Uh, my family probably thinks it's me. Um, but, but Caiaphas steps up and like, we got to do something. You don't understand. Let me just tell you how we should do this. But it's ironic, actually, when he then goes and says what they should do how wicked he seems. He says that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In saying one man, he means Jesus. And John clarifies here in verse 51 that God was using Caiaphas in his role as the high priest 
through which he was given a prophetic voice. John says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And John MacArthur explains, the responsibility for the wicked meaning of his words belonged to Caiaphas, but God's providence directed the choice of words so as to express the heart of God's glorious plan of salvation. He actually was used by God as a prophet because he was the high priest And originally, the high priest was the means of God's will being revealed. So in Caiaphas' declaration of what should happen, God was superintending over Caiaphas' wickedness to, to push forward the plan and the mission of our Savior to die. It's dark, deceptive, and wicked of this man to say this. But God in his sovereignty willed it to be so. Leon Morris says, What Caiaphas spoke as a piece of cynical political realism, God meant to be understood in a deeper, more significant way. Jesus' death was a death for others, not a death for himself. We should not overlook this way of putting it. Means a, it means a definitely substitutionary death. And substitutionary means taking the place of someone else. And John elaborates further as God inspires him to write in verse 52. He says, and he's dying not, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, it's not just the nation for the Jews, but for all who come to Jesus in repentant faith for all time. See, we're actually found in that text. Jesus is coming to die for us. In verse 53 which has gotten me the most emotional this week. We see that the decision has been made by the Sanhedrin. The council says he must die. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That made plans is actually they resolved to put him to death. Leon Morris says about this, it may well be that this was the real trial of Jesus. By Jewish law and capital cases, a verdict of guilty could not be given on the same day as the trial, nor could it be given without the presence of the defendant. That's apparently why John says so little about the Jewish trial after Jesus is arrested. The trial had already been held, and all that remained after the arrest was to deliver the sentence. And we all know The sentence was death by crucifixion. But what is the significance? You may be here this morning and say, what what is this about Jesus dying for people? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, it's because not only was it necessary, but there was no other way 
There's no other way for human beings to relate with God. And in fact, to escape the judgment, the just wrath of God against sin. All of mankind is under sin. We have all gone our own ways. We have all rebelled against our creator who is holy and just. In Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death. In Isaiah 53.6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the only way for us to be reconciled and have our sins atoned for is to have someone stand in our place to be our substitute. And that someone had to be perfect. There is no other man in all of history who was perfect. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the only one absolutely spotless, blameless, obey God in every single way. He had to be the one that steps in our place to be our substitute. There is no other acceptable offering. Now, many people find this hard to swallow. This, This is a teaching, Richard Phillips says, that many find offensive. They object to being told that they can be made right with God only by Jesus dying on the cross in their place. But their objection fails to realize the true gravity of sin. They fail to see sin for its ugliness and its character. This is the reason why one man should die for the people, not to spare them the vengeance of the Romans, but to spare them the righteous wrath of God. But how can this be? How can a man die in the place of so many? You might ask that question. Gresham Machen says this, it is perfectly true that no mere man can pay the penalty of another man's sin. But it does not fall that Jesus could not. For Jesus was not mere, a mere man, but the eternal son of God. See, the Christian doctrine of the atonement, therefore, is altogether rooted in the Christian doctrine of the deity of Christ. Both God, he's fully God and fully man. I love how Peter writes about this very simplistically, though, for us and thinking about this whole atonement and substitutionary death. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, the whole purpose of Jesus dying and then also being raised on the third day, the whole purpose wasn't just to atone for sins, but to reconcile us to our Father, that we could relate with God in an unhindered way. See, as we behold this wicked plot, sentencing Jesus to death, we have to remember that it is the sovereign God of the universe who has decided in eternity past that this was going to happen, that we would have a Savior come and that he would die in our place. See, before the decision of the Sanhedrin, God had already made this decision. It's his sovereign will. How it all works together, it hurts our brains to try to think about this. But we ultimately know that it is our sovereign God who is making a way for us through his son, our savior. Friend, if you have yet to come to Jesus Christ, in repentant faith. If you are here, even maybe for the first time, if you're hearing about Jesus for the first time this morning, first, I, 
love the fact that you're here. But do not, don't, don't let this escape you thinking that maybe um, you're here just out of happen, happen chance or happenstance. You're actually here because God has brought you here to hear this message. Jesus died on the cross, as we'll see later in the Gospel of John, to atone for sins for all those who would put their faith in him. That they, when we put our faith in Christ, that we would escape the wrath of God because the wrath of God for our sins was emptied out on the Son of God when he died on the cross. I just want to ask you, look around yourself a little bit, around, around at creation, around at everything and its design. We all have to admit that there is a grand designer behind it all. There is an exactness in everything God has done. And that exactness also points a little bit to us and we get a glimpse of how exact God is in his holiness, in his justice. For us to relate with God, for us to be forgiven, not to experience the wrath of God, we need a savior, a mediator in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will experience the wrath of God. So will you simply just, I just encourage you, will you simply come to Jesus in simple, humble faith, realizing you need a savior. And outside of him, you are a sinner who is in the hands of an angry, holy God. For those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, I just want you to simply stop. Behold your God who has sovereignly worked through the sinful and wicked plotting of men to bring upon his son the judgment that you and I deserve for our sins. Sovereign, in control, on a mission to bring us to himself. Behold your willing savior who would eventually give himself over to be killed, to die in your place. Jesus came to die for you so that you can have fresh faith as you even embark on 2023 to have fresh faith in him and live in the good of his death. We've covered the two responses, the prophetic plot now for a third point, the Passover preparation. In verses 54 to 57, John indicates now that Jesus, knowing the plot against him, he no longer walked openly among the Jews. In some ways, it's ending kind of his more public ministry. So he goes a distance away to spend time with his disciples, and we learn in the next verse that the Passover of the Jews is at hand. Remember what the Passover was. It was a celebration of a feast, a celebration feast of remembering how God had passed over the Israelites and not destroyed them back in Exodus. A Passover lamb was sacrificed as a symbol of basically God's judgment and it's passing over that judgment over the Israelites. So they're, they're sacrificing a lamb. This would be Jesus' last Passover. Listen, he was not just preparing for the Passover with his disciples. He was preparing to become the Passover lamb. Richard Phillips says Jesus was preparing himself and his disciples for what he knew was soon to come. And we see in verse 55 that there are many coming up to Jerusalem preparing themselves for the Passover. And at the end of verse 55 it says to purify themselves. Colin Cruz says Levitical purity was required of lay people at Passover because men had to enter the court of the priest to bring their lambs to be sacrificed. 
Those requiring ritual cleaning needed to undergo this seven days before the Passover. Little did they know that the one who was just sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin would be in his death. He would become their true Passover lamb who would purify his people. No more ritual cleansing would be required for Jesus would fulfill the law in every point in his own death. And in verse 56 and 57, we see people looking for Jesus in the temple. Will he come to the feast at all? And then we see the chief priests and the Pharisees basically saying, if you see him at all, let us know. We want to arrest him. It's almost... It's uncanny, actually. It's almost like they're searching for the Passover lamb to slaughter. Jesus was being prepared by God through these orchestrated events for the most significant event in all of history. His death as the ultimate Passover lamb. Remember what John the Baptist said earlier in John? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Church, behold your Passover lamb. Let's move to closing application now. So thinking about this at a time, New Year's Day, I don't know how many of you do this and choose to do New Year's resolutions. But I believe God wants us to be very, very simple about this. To think long and deep about what the death of Christ means. But as we start another year, I believe God sovereignly placed this message on January 1st for us to remember Christ's death and to live in the good of it weekly, daily, hourly. We do not and we cannot earn the favor of God or merit our salvation or sanctify ourselves through our own self-justifying measures. The Pharisees love to try to do that. Jesus has already given it to us. The death of Christ was once and for all, for all who believe in him. We are free. We live in him by grace. We do not seek to earn God's favor. We have it. We have no reason to fear. Maybe as you look back across 2022, after it closed, you may have regrets, maybe even sin struggles that you you can't seem to shake. But remember, we do not justify ourselves. Jesus has done it. So even as you go, like even in the morning to go read the word, we don't go there thinking we have to do this as a duty. We get to spend time with God because Jesus has made the way for us to spend time with God. We get to open the word, to be replenished, to be refreshed, to be reminded that we come not out of duty, but we come out of delight because God has made this way that we can be his child or his children and enjoy his fellowship, and learn and glean from his word. Listen, it is, it is really possible for us as Christians, and even to be in ministry, and not live in the good of the gospel, to live in the good of the death of Christ. Milton Vincent, who, uh, who authored the gospel primer, is a helpful living example of this. He states the following, I would never have acknowledged this to be the case at at the time, but I labored, I labored for most of my life to maintain my justified status before God. And I always left frustrated in my attempts to do so. The God I believed in was frequently angered with me. I operated this way through college and seminary and even through, listen, the first decade 
of ministry as a pastor. I knew something better was available. I just didn't know how to get it. What Milton realized over time was that he wasn't living in what the good of what Jesus did for him. In a particular crisis of faith, he recounts reading Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Listen to Milton's experience in thinking about this. He says, as I continued through the chapter, my soul was stirred by these inspired exaltations of a man who rejoiced in, who rejoiced in, rather than worried about his justified status before God. This justification brought him into a gracious standing with God that was accomplished and always maintained by Jesus Christ. The more I read, the more I began to see something I had not seen before. As a justified one, I am under God's gracious favor at all times because of what Jesus did. Church, it's so easy for us to assume that we know the good news and we experience the good news in our hearts. But let's not settle for a mere intellectual assent to this. But daily rehearse what Jesus did on our behalf so that it is what we live in. I call this gospel breathing. Like, just like we're breathing air. We're, we're breathing this truth and we're living in the good of it because it frees, us up. it frees us up to obey God in every other way. Actually helps us to overcome our sins. Let me close with this. It is God's love that has provided this for us. It is God's heart that we live in the good and his favor of his son's death. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, while we're still sinners, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. Church, let's make 2023 a year of rejoicing even more in the death of our Savior. For Jesus came to die for you and me so that we can have fresh faith in him and live in the good of his death. Let's pray.